Well, today's show features a game you can play with your family, and honestly, it's my family's probably favorite game to play together, so it would be a wonderful time, a fun time, um, a little crazy time, uh, but it, it could waste a ton of time during your day, during these home quarantine uh, hours that you were spending with your children and you were bored to death. So I'm going to feature this game today. I'll also, and, and here's the subtitle, by the way, of the game. Build a unicorn army, betray your friends, unicorns are your friends now. If that's not the greatest subtitle to a game ever, I don't know what is. And then you'll get the story of when I was abducted in India. Yes, I've been abducted before and you won't believe what it led to. It's kind of an extraordinary, it's one of my near-death experiences uh, and so you're going to get that today as well. So let's get going. But before we go, I want to just remind everybody that if you go to smalleyinstitute.com, we are now doing virtual intensives. So we have a three-hour, a one-day, two-day, and three-day virtual intensive option. You can find out all the information you need. Give us a phone call. Let one of my intensive consultants help you uh, determine if this is a good thing for you and your relationship or your family as well. You can do this with a child. You can do this with a family member, a parent, whoever you need help with. If you're wanting to draw closer together, consider a virtual intensive, especially while we're all stuck at home during this home quarantine time. And then if you want to turn your relationship around starting immediately today, I have some really good virtual classes. So these courses are on an incredible learning platform. I've got all of our DVD studies that have been converted. So you get the video, you get the workbook, you can do this as a small group. So you can play it from any device. And they're really cool, so you can check out our courses. We have some free ones, we have some paid ones, and they're all excellent. So all that is also at smalleyinstitute.com. And then lastly, if you are uh, wanting an event for the fall, apparently, hopefully, uh, this coronavirus thing has been crazy for people who do live events, but if you're wanting a comedy event uh, at your church or corporation or just at your home, you want me to come by and entertain your family for an evening, uh, I'm open to all of it, so you can also check out on how easy it is to host a live event with me and a comedy date night or just comedy evening that you can promote to the entire community. It's a really fun time. Uh, you can find that out at smallinstitute.com. Just click on host live event at the top. So now, real or messed up quarantine family fun tips. Today, I'm just giving you a real one. So it's a game that my family and I love. We play it all the time. We've especially been playing it while we've been trapped at home. And it is called Unstable Unicorns. It is a strategic card game about everyone's two favorite things, destruction and unicorns. So it's one of those classic, like, new sort of breed of card games where... Um, you know, you're trying to build your stable of unicorns. So I think if you have quite a few people, like five or six or more, then you have to get six unicorns in your stable. If it's just two of you, you're trying to get seven unicorns in your stable. And each card that you draw has crazy powers and things that you can do to each other, uh, upgrades and downgrades. It, it's really not very difficult to learn, and it truly is a lot of fun. I'm going to read just from the back of the box here. So learn how unstable 
your friendships or family really are. So you start with a baby unicorn in your stable, so cute, but don't get too attached because even baby unicorns aren't safe in this game. There are over 20 magical unicorns to collect and each has a special power. Build your unicorn army as fast as you can or be destroyed by one of your so-called friends. Seek revenge or protect your stable using your magic. Sound easy? Not so fast. Someone could have a nay card. Get it? Nay. (laughs) And send the game into madness. The first person to complete their unicorn army shall hereafter be known as the righteous ruler of all things magical. At least until the next game. Good luck. I mean, even their description is amazing. So I'd encourage you, you can find Unstable Unicorns on Amazon, uh, probably your local comic book store, uh, wherever. So it is a very, very fun game, and I think it will help your family pass the time in fun. And it's a lot less, like, even though you're trying to destroy each other, we have not had extensive fighting during the game like you do when, for example, you play Monopoly. So we've banned Monopoly from our family because we tend to try to kill each other, which, you know, sort of defeats the purpose of family time together when you're really angry and shutting down and withdrawing and escalating. So Unstable Unicorns is a great way to go. I had to get a drink there. Okay, so now for today's story time. Remember, I'm doing this thing because obviously we're all stuck or you should be stuck at home. So hopefully you guys are all taking this coronavirus thing seriously in your home quarantine, quarantining yourself. I have already been, I was a full week into home quarantine before our county, our local county, did an official legal home quarantine uh, demand. So I'm, I'm seven days ahead of everyone else in my community. But I'm just trying to bring some fun, some laughter. I know some of you are going, hey, when are you gonna do marriage stuff again? It'll come. Right now, I just think we need to laugh. And so I am just sharing absurd stories from my life that are all true. And today's story is 100% true. And the, the, you know, what's funny is I've got a lot. I've got a lot of stories that, uh, that happened in my life where, you know, as a comedian, one of the rules of thumb is you need to exaggerate. That's what makes people laugh, is exaggerated, absurd things. And so sometimes stories, you just need to blow them up, right? You're not lying, like my wife used to say, because <laughs> I would exaggerate things. It's, it's being comedic, right? So if you're there to laugh, you should know that maybe all the things aren't necessarily accurate, but it was entertaining and you enjoyed yourself. This story is another one of those th- stories that I don't have to change a single detail of what happened. So... I was at Promise Keepers back in the day. This is probably 1999, 2000, somewhere around there. And I was at the Atlanta Superdome. If you remember that stadium in Atlanta, gigantic. There were probably 60, 70,000 men. And (laughs) I'll never forget it because I'm a weirdo and I got to be me. So even at Promise Keepers, um, I did me, which I was very different from pretty much all the speakers that they would have on stage. So I was backstage in the green room and they had a little like tented off area in the green room where you could get changed and get ready for your event or your session. And so I was back there and I had come up with the idea. (laughs) My story 
was going to be for men to become the ultimate servant in their home. And back back in the day during Jesus's time, if you were a bond servant, so if you were a servant that was given your freedom and then you chose to stay with the family, you became a bond servant. So a lot of times the tradition was they would take you out to like a fence post on the property. They'd lean you down and they'd pierce your ear and put a big old hoop earring and that would designate like it was an honoring thing to have. It meant that, hey, you were given, you know, I was given my freedom, but I have chosen to stay and serve this family. And so my whole point of that session was going to be, guys, be the biggest servant in your home. That's kind of the secret. So I thought, oh, I should dress up for this thing. So I actually bought a magnetic, like gigantic hoop earring that I put on. And, and then I took my hotel bed sheet and I made a toga out of it. Now, why I would make a Greek toga to represent a Jewish slave, I don't know. It has to be offensive on so many levels. Ben Shapiro will probably be very offended at that. But that that was my idea. So I had like, you know, spandex, whatever, runners, tight, like little short things under it. And I put this sheet over me and I did my best to make a toga out of a sheet, right? It's from that famous movie. And so I'm in there, I get it all on. So I, all I have, I don't have any shirt underneath. I just have this sheet that is done in a fairly makeshift toga manner and I have this big hoop earring in my ear and I come out of the dressing room and wouldn't you know, there's coach Bill McCartney, right? One of the founders of Promise Keepers and Henry Blackaby. If you don't know who Henry Blackaby is, Henry Blackaby wrote that amazing study called Experiencing God. He's like, these are two pillars of the faith. And this moron comes out of the changing room in the green room in a toga and a big gigantic gold hoop earring. And I come out and Coach McCartney is kind of Blackaby's like looking at me like like this, you know, like up and down going, what is happening? And Coach looks at me, looks all up and down and goes, Smalley, you have way too much leg showing. And I was like, of course, because I can't help being sarcastic. And I just looked and went, I don't know what's more concerning, that I'm wearing this toga or that you're focused on my legs. So he laughed. He's like, man, you are the weirdest dude. So I went out on stage. It was a great session. And in the audience that night was a pretty famous evangelist. I'm not going to give his name, and you'll know why later. But he he was really impressed by my talk. So he actually ended up coming back to the green room after my session. And he said, dude, I'd love to bring you to India with me. I was like, man, I've never been to India. I'd love to go to India. I love traveling the world. I love meeting people in all the cultures. Uh, it's probably my favorite thing that I do. And so he, this guy invites me in. I'm like, I'd love to go. And he goes, how about in two weeks? I'm like, sure. So I, you know, I'm like, but you'll need to buy the ticket. Cause I was like, man, this could be a scam. I mean, who knows? Right. So I'm like, you're going to have to buy my plane ticket and blah, blah, blah. Cause I don't have the money to do that kind of thing. He's like done. And a week later I received my plane ticket. So I'm like, tell my wife, like, Hey, I'm, I'm like going to India in a week. She's like, what? What do you mean you're going to India? I'm like, yeah, I told this guy I would, and he booked the tickets. And so next thing you know, I'm on a flight to India, which is a incredibly long trip. I started my stopwatch in Springfield, Missouri. We were living in Branson at the time. Started my stopwatch. By the time I finally got to India, it had been 48 hours of constant travel. And it was like two layovers and oh, but on my final like segment into Mumbai, which used to be called Bombay, India, it finally dawns on me that 
I don't know who I'm meeting. I don't have any details of the trip, any details of what I'm doing. I don't know who I'm supposed to meet, where I'm supposed to go. So now my anxiety starts like rising tremendously because I'm going, oh my gosh, once again, I've done no planning. I've had no forethought. It's like, oh Lord, what am I going to do? So by the time I land in Mumbai, my anxiety is through the roof because man, it is a crazy country. There are so many people and I'm in this huge airport walking around going, uh, I guess I'll just go to baggage claim and maybe someone will be there with a sign. And so as I'm going to baggage claim, I'm walking, this little Indian guy, well, I didn't know he was Indian because of how he was dressed, but he looked like, if you remember the movie Dick Tracy, right? Those Dick Tracy kind of characters. He had a Dick Tracy hat. He had these gigantic sunglasses that like females wear, like just huge bug-eyed sunglasses and then a trench coat, this tan trench coat pulled over and the collar's up and this guy rams into me. And and believe it or not, because of my ADD, I daydream constantly and I'm constantly not focused and I'm, you know, I might be looking straight ahead, but I'm not actually seeing what's in the present day. I'm, I'm seeing 400 years in the future. So I run into people all the time. So this guy like smashes into me like, boom, and I'm like, whoa, and I'm, oh, I'm so sorry, sir, I, I didn't see you, I don't know how I did that. And there he goes, don't, don't say anything. Meet me, I have a van outside in a dark corner. Meet me there after you get your luggage. I went, what? I, I was like, what was that? It was such a mysterious message. So now I'm like trying to get my luggage, I'm like, what are you talking about? I gotta go outside, I gotta find a dark corner. I mean, that's not terrifying. And there's gonna be a white van there. So I get my luggage, I go outside the airport, I'm looking around, and lo and behold, there's this dark corner and a gigantic, like 15 passenger white van in the corner, in the dark corner. So I'm like, well, that must be my ride. So I'm thinking, man, this trip is not starting right. And, and so I go to the corner and there's several other Indians in there and they're like greeting me and hugging me and I don't know who they are and they're going, hey, you found us, way to go. And so I get in the van and, and I start on this like tour of these massive crusades uh, around India with this evangelist and it's just the evangelist and me speaking at all of these events. These were some of the biggest events I'd ever, not some of, they were the biggest events I'd ever done except for Nigeria, Africa. But they're huge. I mean, 250,000 people. But the problem was there was this uh, militant group of Hindus, which I was unaware that there were militant groups of Hindus. And so there's this militant group of Hindus that was kind of preceding many of our events and following us and bomb threats and uh, I mean, it really kind of got out of control. By the time we got to this gigantic city called Rajamundry, um, they had actually, and it was terrifying, but they had actually, um, they had firebombed. So one of the things some of the cities, at least in India, do is they will put their poor people, they build these huge, like, 15, 20-foot mud walls, and they put all their, and, and they, it's like, Four, and there's like one door in, one door out, and, and it's a huge like gate kind of thing. And they'll put their poor, the people just who have nothing, and they'll just stuff them in there. And so this militant group of Hindus had firebombed one of these 
uh, housing, not housing. Like when you go in it, it people are literally living under like a plastic, um, like a tarp. So they'll have like four wooden like stakes and they'll have this plastic tarp and that's what they're living under. It's absolutely atrocious. So they had locked them all in there. So they had locked the, the only gate in or out of this thing. And then they had firebombed, you know, through these firebomb things into it and killed quite a few people. They had also taken a woman and put her out in the square of the town and taped her to this chair and dumped a bucket of acid over her. And then they, they, they put all of the flyers for the crusade that we were doing on her. So by the time we showed up, it, it had been really nasty. And the mayor of the city actually asked me to go tour the, um, the place where, where, where all the people had been firebombed, which was devastating. Uh, I'd never seen dead people before and there were so many and, and, and I was like the only white guy around. So, you know, despite what you hear the news say, I'm telling you, I've been all over the world. People love America and we are the great hope of the world. And so when they see this American come through the big gate, uh, all the kids instantly, and I'm kind of like this weird Pied Piper for kids, probably because I still act like a kid. And and so I'm when I'm in Africa, India, China, I'm always surrounded by hordes of children. And so all of these kids came running up to me. And the thing that really stuck out were, were their smiles. I mean, there was death everywhere. They hadn't even removed the bodies yet. And here these kids are jumping and screaming and smiling and they're just beautiful teeth. And it was like, what is going on? And, and just, you know, prayed over them and hung out and played. And, you know, it was just, uh, it was truly surreal. And so, you know, we go from Rajamundri to Vishashkapatnam. So I do have an Indian accent, which I will break out from time to time throughout the story. So Vishashkapatnam is the only way I can actually pronounce that is with an Indian accent. So we end up in Vishashkapatnam and we're at this hotel and this evangelist, of course, is staying up in the penthouse and he calls me up to his, uh, you know, palace-like room and he's kind of in a panic because his wife sent him a letter or an email, something saying she was going to divorce him. And he's like, Michael, why would my wife want to leave me? And I'm like, you know, I thought, what are you going to lose? I'm just going to be honest. And I was kind of just already in a mood just because of all the death that these crusades were creating. And it just, none of it felt right. And so I was honest. I'm sorry. He asked me a question and I was honest. And I went, well, uh, maybe she's leaving you because you're never home. And he never was. He was constantly like 50 weeks out of the year. He was on the road doing these big crusades around the world. And so I just challenged him, said, you know, it's probably because you're on the road constantly and you've basically abandoned your family. And he's like, oh, I'm doing God's work and this is all very important. I went, no, I'm sorry. When you chose to get married, that became your ministry. So this stuff is is secondary, tertiary to your family. And oh, but I am going around the world and saving lives and winning souls. And I'm like, dude, first of all, you don't win a single soul. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And 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 then I probably went over the line when I said, um, has it ever occurred? Because he had one child, a boy. I said, has it ever occurred to you that while you think you're out here saving souls, that you could be raising the Antichrist? <laughs> I'll admit that was a little strong, a little heavy-handed. 
But I was trying to like go, dude, like your son is going to associate abandonment and rejection uh, with God because, you know, usually a kid's sort of image of God is based on their father. And I go, bro, man, this isn't good. Well, let's just say he did not receive that information very well. So I got kicked off the, the, the crusade tour in Vishashkapatnam. Now, if you know India, this would be the east side on this hand. This is west side. Mumbai is on the west coast. On the east coast, so you couldn't be further away, is Vishashkapatnam. So he kicks me off the tour. Doesn't tell me how to get back to Mumbai. Doesn't do anything. I am totally left on my own. Which is when the fun started. So in Vishashkapatnam, I'm like going to the, there's like, there was no real airport that I could get to. I had to go somewhere else to get on an airport. So I had to take the train. Now I'm at the train station in India and I'm going to buy a ticket and you can buy a first class ticket or a second class ticket. I don't travel first class. So I'm like, I'll take a second class. The poor ticket dude, ticket master was genuinely trying to tell me Sir, you do not want to buy a second-class ticket. Trust me, you'll want a first-class ticket. I'm like, sir, I, I'm not going to pay the money. It wasn't even that big of a difference. I just, I don't know what my issue is with first-class, but I was like, no, I'm one of the people. I will travel second-class. He's like, okay, that is your opinion. And so he gives me my second-class ticket. So I go out, and I'm going towards the train. And if you've ever seen, and I wish I had the software working, but I don't have that yet, uh, have you ever seen those pictures from India when you see the train going down the tracks? There's like five billion people on the train and it is so overcrowded that people are hanging out the windows. They're sitting on the roof of the train. People are holding and hanging off the train. Mm -hmm. I've been on one of those. And I'll tell you, it's no bueno. So as I'm going to second class, right? So first class was normal, had regular seating and all that kind of stuff. Second class was definitely not the class you want to be in while traveling around India. So I'm going, I'm like, oh no. Now I get why this guy was telling me I don't want to you know, travel second, but oh well, it's the only ticket, train's about to leave. And it is jammed. I get within maybe 10, 15 yards of this train and I threw up from the stench. Yeah. I literally like held onto this fence and puked because the stench was so bad. Why was the stench bad, you ask? Because they don't have any toilets on the train. So guess what people do? They've cut holes in the floor of the train and they poop and they try to hit the hole. And when a train's going and it's moving and you're, imagine you're squatting going, trying to hold on, they don't always hit the hole. So there's feces in this thing and then I immediately understand why those photos have everybody hanging out the train because the stench in the train is so terrible. So there I am traveling from Vishashkapatnam to wherever, and I am, I'm one of those people. I'm the only white guy anywhere near the second class thing. And I am, I am hanging out the train for dear life just to, you know, just to be able to breathe. So I finally get to this airport. The whole boarding process is chaos. They don't do pre-assigned seats. I'm flying local Indian planes. And I swear to you, on one of the planes, 
I'm going out because you have to walk out on the tarmac and go upstairs to get on the flight. There was literal duct tape on the airplane wing. Duct tape. I mean, these planes were not safe. And then you get on the plane and the stench is not quite as bad as the train, but it's pretty intense. There are goats walking around. There's chickens walking around. I mean, it's like you're just on there going, what am I doing? To get from the East Coast to the West Coast, I had to take 11, 11 local flights to get back to Mumbai. Up, down, up, down, up, down. It was miserable. But one of the cool things that actually happened is when I finally landed at the local, so there's two airports, well, at least two airports in Mumbai. There's a local airport, so that's where I landed, and then there's the big, fancy international airport. So I landed at the local airport. I Actually, no, I'm sorry. It was a stop before Mumbai. So the last stop that I had before arriving in Mumbai, I am exhausted. It's like midnight. I've been traveling for like 24 hours to try to get back home. And I. uh, so it's the last stop before Mumbai. I just want to go home. I'm done. I've, you know, I've seen dead people. Oh, by the way, in Vishashkaputnam, one of the other questions the evangelist asked me is apparently the the militant terrorist Hindu group, and, and they're apparently very young people. They're actually the same people that did the Marriott bombing in 1990-something. So this is the same group of people. Apparently, they sent a messenger to the evangelist because as I was doing these crusades, the only thing I know is uh, is to tell stories, and I want people to laugh, and I thought, how am I going to make you know, an entire different culture laugh, right? Because maybe my humor is just for Americans and I know it works in Africa, but I thought, oh, so what I ended up doing at all these events, and I actually got quite a bit of press on this, was I just share stories of the stuff that was happening to me real time in India. And I got really like roaring laughter. And so I was really like, I was getting into it. My stories were being received and people were laughing and coming to Christ, and it was just a nutty time. So this group sent a messenger to the evangelist and said, we want Michael Smalley to come to our secret hidden terrorist camp and meet with us. So when he asked me, hey, I want you to go do this, I was like, what? And, and even me, which I'll take every risk known to man, I don't have a lot of fear. I practically have no fear. Uh, and I don't think about things, and I like adventure, and I like adrenaline, and so I, I'm a little surprised. But even for me, I'm like, look at the guy going, no! As a white boy from America, I am not going to the secret camp of the terrorist group that's been killing people and trying to kill us this entire time. That's like, clearly that's a trap, right? Now, I was morbidly obese at the time, so maybe it would have been a good idea, because realistically... They would have captured me and held me hostage there, and I could have lost a lot of weight, and I wouldn't have had to get gastric bypass surgery. But I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that, man. I, I'm, I'm married. I've got, I think at the time, I just had two. I go, I got two young kids. No, I'm not going to take that risk. And that also ticked the guy off. So now I am one stop away from Mumbai. And, and this is what's cool, by the way, about a relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're watching and you've never had a relationship with Christ or you're thinking about it, one of the great benefits, 
beyond eternal life with Christ. One of the great benefits is for those who are in Christ, right? So for those who, who Jesus would call his disciple, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is amazing because the Holy Spirit wants to guide you, will um, give you wisdom, is going to convict you. I mean, the Holy Spirit speaks to you, lives in you. And so, but that's only for those who are in Christ. So I'm a disciple. I'm one stop away from Mumbai. I'm walking off the plane. It's like midnight. I'm exhausted. I just want to go home. It's been a disaster trip, stressful beyond, beyond reason. And the Holy Spirit spoke, right? And it wasn't, you know, not everyone could hear it, but, you know, it's just that kind of quiet, still voice that you'll hear. And the Holy Spirit literally just said, hey, I want you to get $300 from this ATM. And I happen to be right by an ATM, but I want you to get it in local currency. So $300 US in local Indian currency. And I kind of argued with the Holy Spirit. I was like, I am leaving. I need to get out of this country. I don't want to have 300 US of local currency because that like, I don't know if it's called the ruble or I can't think of what the currency is called in India, but... I'm like, ah, no, I don't want to get that. And the Holy Spirit's like, you need to get it. I'm like, I'm not going to get it. He's like, get it or I will strike you dead now. It's like, oh. So it was, it was. It was one of those really intense Holy Spirit moments where I knew if I'm disobedient here, I, I'm, in, I'm in big trouble. So, um, so I go to this ATM. I put my debit card in, and I get three hundred dollars of local Indian money. And it, I mean, it's like stacks of money. So I'm stacking it in my because all I brought, of course, to India was a carry-on, and then I had a rather large backpack. So I'm stuffing it in the carry-on. I'm stuffing it in my backpack. I'm irritated at the Holy Spirit, going, "Why are you making me do this?" And so I'm fine, whatever. I'm on my way. So now I have my $300 US of local Indian money. I don't know why. I just know the Holy Spirit told me to get it. Now I land in the local airport of Mumbai. And this is where God's plan starts to unfold. So as I'm exiting the airport, two strange men grab me, have a knife, and throw me into the back of their car. And and one of the obviously the one of the guys not driving has this huge, like it was like a curvy Indian knife. And, and he's got it at my neck and, and he, you know, forced me to lay down in the back seat and he's got this knife at my neck. And I'm like, oh my Lord, there is no freaking way that I'm being abducted. Like, how many people do you know have been abducted in your life? If you're watching this, you now know I have. So I'm laying in the back seat of this car, there's a knife at my throat and I'm just going, seriously, Lord? Like... I was this close to getting out of country. Now I don't know where I'm going. So they drive for like an hour out into the middle of nowhere. It's like there's no moon this night. It was pitch black. There wasn't any like electrical things anywhere nearby, street lights. And I have a lot of that uh, in the rural poor poor areas, at least, I'm sorry, poor neighborhoods of, of Mumbai. And so they're just driving. And the entire time I'm at total peace. I'm telling you. At, at no time did I get anxious. At no time was I worried. I thought, finally, because I've had so many near deaths leading up to this near death, I'm like, maybe now I get to be, be with Jesus and I get out of this miserable world. So I was totally cool. Had no problem at all. 
So we drive for like an hour and then they pull over in some, I'm assuming empty lot, it was so dark. And they the, the driver kind of turns around and goes, give me all your money, but I only want local currency. He actually said, I only want local currency. And I thought, wow, that's a coincidence. So I kind of sit up and I'm like, easy. And the guy's got the knife. And I went, funny enough, I just got a bunch of local currency. And so I start pulling out these stacks of local Indian money. And their eyes are like, what? And and because you could imagine $300 US in local currency, that's like, that could be two years worth of work for these guys. And they're just going, whoa, what is up? And so I hand it all over and they kick me out of the car. And they thankfully threw my backpack and my suitcase to me. This is the first time that I panic. But how cool though, right? The Holy Spirit knew you're about to get abducted and they're gonna want local money. So you need to get local money. So praise God that I was actually obedient, right? But now I'm kicked out of the car, it's pitch black, and it dawns on me, as soon as this car drives off, I'm not going to be able to see. Like, you could, I could hold my hand out in front of me, I couldn't see my hand. So now I finally start to panic, right? Because if you've listened to any of my uh, previous earlier uh, comedy shows that I've just started last week, you know that my brother used to mess with me, right? You heard, if, if, if you haven't watched or listened to it, it's on the podcast as well, you need to. Because one time my brother uh, dressed as a full body Freddy Krueger and hid under my bed for two hours before I was put to bed. And then like, <laughs> scared me, made me wet my pants. So I have a genuine fear of the dark. So this is the first time I panic because I realize once the car leaves, I can't see nothing. And I don't know when the sun's coming up. And I, 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 I totally start to freak out. And I'm like, Lord, you need to kill me now. Strike me with lightning. Do not leave me here in the dark. And once again, Holy Spirit comes to the rescue. But he kind of gave a really odd, odd leading or guidance. Because the Holy Spirit clearly spoke to me. Go ask them for a ride to the international airport. Yeah, can't make that up. Holy Spirit was like, ask them for a ride back or at least to the international airport. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's really funny, Lord. I'm obviously not going to go to the abductors who just robbed me, held me at knife point for an hour and see if they'd be kind enough to drive me to the international airport. Lord was like, I'm telling you, that's your ride. I'm like, no, I'm not. This is insane. He's like, go do it. I'm like, fine. I just thought he was trying to speed up my death to be honest. So, I, you know, they're about to take off and I go haul in and I knock on the window. So they're both in the front seat. I scare the passenger guy to death. I'm like, tap, tap. And he's like, ah! And he looked at me and, he, and he's confused. He's like, what could you possibly want? And I'm like, roll your window down. So he like cracks the window like this much. And he goes, yes. And I went, this is a really odd request. But, you know, would you guys maybe just drive me to the international airport? I'm like, you can keep the money. I'm not going to turn you in. I just, I can't be left out here in the dark. And the guy like, uh, okay. And he rolls the window back up and then he says something in Hindi to the driver. And they erupt into this massive argument. 
I mean, they are screaming and waving their knives around. And I mean, it's like totally, I'm like, oh Lord, what, you know, this is bad. This is really happening. Like they're going to come out and like gut me to death. And then the guy like, they're, ah, they're yelling and, and then they just stop. The guy rolls his window down. He goes, get in. I went, really? He's like, get in. So they unlock the car. I get in the back seat and they drive me to the international airport. That is what God does for you in your life. In case you're wondering, even in the craziest of circumstances, he's still there with you. So I, I get back to the airport. I'm totally, you know, I'm wiped out emotionally. I actually went to a payphone, called my wife and she's like, oh, hey, and I'm like, I'm coming home today. She's like, yeah, I go, yeah, I just got robbed. I didn't describe the entire scene, but I did break down. I finally broke down and started crying. And she's like, oh, you're going to be okay. And I can't wait to see you. So I travel back. I get back home. And the fun continues. So about two weeks after returning home from India, I got sick. I mean, I got real sick. So this is like in December and we're in Branson. So it's, there's snow and it's really cold. And I, I wake up with a high fever and I puked my brains out like all night long. I probably threw up 80 times after, you know, two or three throw ups. I had nothing left and yet I couldn't stop throwing up. I eventually passed out on the tile floor of our master bathroom. So my wife like wakes up to pee in the morning at like six or whatever, comes in the bathroom seat. I'm laying just in my underwear on the tile floor. I am out like kind of under to the side and under the, the, it's like I curled up with the toilet and I'm totally out. And she kind of like puts her foot on me. He's like, Hey, what are you doing? (laughs) It's the greatest question, by the way, if you wake up in the morning, and your husband is passed out under the toilet, something's wrong. Maybe he's drunk and passed out, or maybe he's really, really sick. But she kind of like taps me and she's like, yo, why did you sleep under the toilet? And I'm thinking, you honestly think that I woke up in the middle of the night and thought, you know what would be a really comfortable place to spend the rest of my evening under the toilet on a cold tile floor? Right? So I'm like, hey, something's wrong. I'm dying. She's like, you're not dying. I'm like, no, 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 I'm dying. Because what had happened in India, I had contracted meningitis. Oh, yeah. Just one more gift that I got from, in, uh, from India. So I didn't know I had meningitis. But that's what was kicking in because it has about a two-week incubation period. So I'm like, when you have meningitis, if if those of you watching, if you've never had it, trust me, it's like nothing you have ever experienced before. And so I like, I'm like almost in tears. I'm in so much pain. Your spine hurts because it, it, it infects right down here and this goes right down your spine. Your spine, it, it feels like a demon is trying to rip the spine out of your body. And so I'm like, I'm dying. You need to take him to the hospital. She's like, you're not dying. Which, how could she know that I have meningitis? She can't possibly know that. So she's assuming No, you have the flu. But I'm thinking, well, I've had the flu before and this is nothing like the flu. Like this was a thousand times worse than the flu. But she's like, no. And then of course that same day, our, uh, one of our, our water pipe and like in the 
kind of walkout basement thing in Branson, it broke, it burst because it got frozen. So now we have no water. I'm sick. It's Christmas season. So my wife was like, you know what? You're sick. We don't have any water. We're going to go down to my parents' home anyway. So why don't we just go now? I'm like, okay. So she, she volunteered to drive all night long. So we left at like, I don't know, five, six at night and drove because from Branson to Houston is like an 11 hour drive. So she puts me in the car. I have a sleeping bag because I would have this really high fever and then it would break and I'd be freezing cold and I'd be really hot. So I'm going in and out of consciousness on this 11 hour drive into Houston. And I don't remember arriving. I don't remember going into her parents' home. I don't remember going upstairs. All I know is I did not wake up. So we probably got there around five or six in the morning. I did not become conscious until one or two in the afternoon. And I come to and I look around and, and it's worse. The meningitis is really kicking in. So now I am in tears and I'm in so much pain and I know that I'm dying. And I'm kind of looking around. It's hard for me to walk. It's hard for me to see. I don't know what's happening. So I finally get a phone and I call my wife on her mobile. I'm like, hey, I am dying. Something is wrong. You got to take me to the hospital. She's like, oh, come on. It's the flu. You're going to be fine. I'm in this long line. I've been waiting for like 30 minutes. Do I really have to come back and take you to the hospital? I'm like, I need to go to the hospital. So finally, she was like, look, call the doctor, our doctor in Branson. And if he thinks you need to go to the hospital, then I'll come back and I'll take you, which is reasonable. So I call the doctor and I'm like, hey, and I'm telling him the symptoms. And he's like, hey, didn't you just get back from India? I'm like, yeah. He goes, how, how long have you had a fever? I'm like, I think I'm on my third day of a high fever. <laughs> it was like 104, 105. And he's like, Michael, you need to get to a hospital immediately. You're dying. I'm like, I knew it. I knew I was dying. So I call my wife. I'm like, hey. Doctor says I'm dying, that I, I, I need to go now. She's like, all right, I'm coming. So she rushes home. She takes me to Conroe Regional, which I'm going to say that out loud. And and I go to Conroe Regional. And, and, of course, when you go to the ER, you always hit like a admitting nurse or a triage nurse, whatever. And so I'm being interviewed by the nurse. She's like, what are your symptoms? And I'm like, I have like 104, 105 temp. I go, I just got back from India two weeks ago. I gave her every conceivable symptom, sign, or reason that someone might have meningitis. I even went, because one of the big tests for meningitis is, can you touch your chin to your chest? And you can't, because your spine is swollen and it is in so much pain. So I, I volunteered on my own. I, I can't even touch my chin to my chest because my spine hurts so bad. She's like, okay, okay, all right, well, have a seat. She totally misses the diagnosis. So now I sit in Conroe Regional Hospital, Four hours in the lobby. Four hours they make me wait. The whole time, it's getting worse, it's getting worse. Eventually, after four hours, my fever gets to 106, and I take my shirt off, and I lay down on the cold tile floors in the lobby when my wife like jumps into action. She's like, okay, no. No, no, no. My husband is not going to have to lay down on a nasty hospital floor. You guys, and, and everything started to get into, into action. Next thing you know, I'm on a gurney, and they're wheeling me in, and a doctor comes out. He's like, well, what's going on? And she describes all this stuff that's been happening. I was in India, because I'm unconscious at this point. And, and, and he's like, wait, what? Oh, my gosh. Now alarms are going off. Like, beep, beep, beep. 
I do remember that. And, and it's like chaos, and they wheel me into this room, and the doctor's like, sir, I need you to curl up into a fetal position. I'm like, what? And it was so painful, and I'm like, why? And he goes, I have to do a spinal tap, in which they come out with a flipping needle like this big. I'm like, oh, and they go like, and you're back, and it's not a fun procedure to have. And, and he's like, I think you might have meningitis. So then they quarantined me. So this is not my first... <laughs> This is not my first go around with being quarantined. And it's way scary and worse being quarantined in a hospital because they put me in this special room that has its own circular air ventilation thing and had like two sets of sliding doors and no one would enter my room without a hazmat suit on. So when they did the spinal tap, I went unconscious again. I didn't wake up again until I'm in my isolation chamber. And my first memory, I'm laying down, right on the bed, I'm high fever, I'm, I'm dying. There's like a 50% mortality rate. And I'm just miserable, and I kind of open my eyes, and there's this woman in a yellow hazmat suit, <laughs> and she's trying to comfort me. So with those like rubber, you know, like, it's like, I'm like, what is happening? And I asked her, I go, did I die? Because I'm thinking this is an angel. I don't know why I thought someone dressed in a hazmat suit might be an angel, but that was my first go-to. She's like, oh, honey, you haven't, you haven't died, but it's not good. So you need to really fight. You need to hang in there. And so then they start all the stuff. And, and five days later, I actually met the head of the CDC. Why? Because I was patient zero to a major menin a meningitis outbreak in Conroe, Texas. Patient zero. So all I know is he was the first guest to see me without wearing a hazmat suit. And when he came through the doors, I'm like, stop! You need a hazmat He's like, no, you're fine. You're no longer contagious. But hey, I'm from the CDC and we have to, we always have to interview every, you know, he was like, congratulations, you're patient zero. I was like, ugh. Of course I'm patient zero. So I'm, I've actually been patient zero twice in my life. The Conroe meningitis outbreak of 2000, 2001-ish, and a huge uh, meningitis scare uh, at Canica Camp, which is quite funny too. Um, well, it's not funny, but it, that, that summer at Canica Camp, it's a wonderful Christian camp in Branson, Missouri. Uh, it was known as the summer of the flood, the funk, and the fire. I was the funk. So I'll get into that story at some other time. But he, you know, he's like interviewing me going, dude, what's going on? And where were you? And where did you travel? And I get interviewed and blah, 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 blah. Um, and so that was the, uh, the abducted in India story that turned into meningitis. You know, one of the things just before I spent the night puking my brains out at, at my home in Branson, the previous day, maybe two days before, I can't really remember, but my brother brought me to a Kansas City Chiefs game with his buddy who's a doctor, pediatrician. So we were in Kansas City, Missouri at a Kansas Chiefs game. That's when the first symptoms hit me. So I'm like in this huge stadium and I'm like, and so I go running out to the parking lot and I'm throwing up and I'm have a fever, and I'm like, oh my god, and I really thought it was the flu, because at that point, it kind of felt like the flu, and so when they came out to the parking lot uh, after the game, here's how loving my brother is, and a doctor, by the way, 
I was like, man, I just need to get home. They're like, oh, man, we're all the way up here in Kansas City. We really wanted to eat at Cheesecake Factory. I'm like, oh, I don't think I could eat. I'm just, I'm throwing up. I have a fever. And they're like, ah, just stay out in the car. So they literally went to Cheesecake Factory, left me in the car, a doctor, actually two doctors, one in medical and the other in psychology, left me out in the car puking with a fever so they could eat at Cheesecake Factory. I know. Very loving. So that's my story for today. I hope my uh, disastrous life gave you some joy this morning. I hope you were able to find some humor in all of this stuff. Uh, And before I go, I'm going to go to Q&A time. So if you're watching on Facebook Live, submit your questions now. Remember, I'll answer any question. So it doesn't matter what it is. I will answer it. I will try to be truthful. But if I need to lie, I will lie. I'm not afraid. But before we go, just remember, virtual intensives, smalleyinstitute.com. We have three-hour, one-day, two-day, and three-day virtual intensives going on now. You can save a ton of money um, compared to our in-person intensive program. So they're very successful. Uh, Check out one of our online courses at smalleyinstitute.com. And again, consider bringing me to your church, corporation, or family home for a fun comedy uh, night uh, that you will laugh. So you'll enjoy it. All right, now we're going to go to questions. So I have my little thing up here. Here we go. Mario from Phoenix, Arizona asks, I'm going to read it. I should have probably pre-read it. Hello, Mr. Smalley. My question this morning, were you a high school athlete? If yet, if yes, what was your greatest high school sports memory? Hmm. Well, Mario, I was a high school athlete. I was a varsity letterman in football, basketball, track, and tennis. And you know that because you went to school with me. One of my favorite memories, actually one of my favorite, so my best sport, my favorite sport to play was basketball. But I was not, I was a starter most of the time. Um, That was just my favorite one because I love practice, I love games. Uh, Football was definitely my best sport. Uh, But, you know, my favorite memory actually involves Mario. So my senior year, uh, Mario and the baseball team were really, really good. And Mario was like the number one rated catcher in Arizona. I think he got drafted by the Detroit Tigers, actually, that year, it seems like. Um, And so, you know, you're a stud. Mario's a stud catcher. And their third baseman got in. So I'd never played baseball in my life. I didn't play Little League baseball. I never played baseball in my life. But I was a quarterback, so I could throw, and I had a strong arm, and I could catch and field. So I'd done that kind of stuff. Um, and so their third baseman got injured, and for a two, I think a two to three week period, the baseball coach, who was also my basketball coach, asked me to just join the team, play third base, you know. And so I did. I went over like twelve. I was terrible. My first pitch was a curveball, and <laughs> I'd never seen a curveball like live. So I'm standing there and. This ball comes in curves. I went, I turned to the umpire and went, did you see that? Did you see that ball go over here? Did I hear The ump looked at me. He's like, yes, son. That's called a curveball. I'm like, wow, that was awesome. So my, I, I only got on base, I want to say once, because coach finally told me, just don't swing. You don't need to swing. You're not going to hit the ball. So hopefully you'll get a walk. And I did. I got a walk. Then he told me, he gave me the steal sign, whatever it was. It was mortifying. 
because I'd never stole base. I'd never slid before. So I'm hauling from first to second, and I'm thinking, slide. So I went to do a front slide, but my legs buckled underneath me. So I ended up, like, instead of, like, you know, a nice little slow curve and slide in, I did a, and I, I landed, like, two feet short of the base. And it was, like, out of the movies. The guy's like, come on. Come on. You can make it. So I got tagged out. But my memory involves Mario, actually. So he had, I think, the fastest throw from home to second base. So he had very strong arm. I'm playing third base as an ADD moron. And, and baseball is very slow. It's way too slow for an ADD person. So I am, like, bored to death on third base. And I'm totally, like, daydreaming. And apparently someone had stole, you know, second base. So there's a guy on second. I'm playing third. And I'm off to Never Neverland. And all I can remember is Mario going, look out! And I just went, huh? And I caught the ball with my left hand, because I'm a right-handed. Caught the ball just literally inches in front of my face. Because the guy stole third base on me, and I didn't even know. Like, the guy standing there, and, and, and Mario throws the ball, and I look, I'm like, where did you come from? He's like, bro, I was on second. You didn't even try to get me. I was like, yeah, I didn't know you were stealing. So that would be my favorite. What other questions? Ray Ivy says, good morning. Hope all is well. Thank you. Um, thank you, Amanda, for loving my stories. I do love telling stories. Let me see. Amanda, this is crazy. Yes, it was. Uh, let me see here. What are your thoughts? Oh, Marcos Gonzalez. What are your thoughts on the sports drought. So no sports due to quarantine. My thoughts on the sports drought is massively depressed. I hate it. I am a sports fanatic. My poor wife, when Mike and Mike was on or Sports Center, she woke up, you know, she wakes up every day of her life and she has to hear those So my idea on the drought, I mean I'm glad we're doing it. It's important that we're doing that. It would be insane to be hosting live mega events like that. Um, I tend to agree with LeBron James in the sense of playing games without fans. Like, what's the point? So I would rather them, I would rather them, I don't know why Siri just went off. I would rather them wait until fans can come back. Um, cause I, I get it and, and I played sports. So, um, I think it would just it would just be hard to get the emotional energy needed to perform when there's no one booing you or no one cheering you. Frankly, when I played, I loved being booed. And I got booed a lot, especially in basketball. I think I still hold the record of most technical fouls because <laughs> I had a little bit of a mouth on me. So I would mouth off or be sarcastic with refs and I'd get teed up um, for one of the, I think it was a state championship game in basketball. We were playing a Native American team and it happened to be hosted at their like home gym, which was crazy. It was like four stories, and all of them were on top of each other, so they didn't level back. It just was like this huge like rectangle. There were like four thousand Native Americans, and like twenty uh, of our parents, you know, showed up for the game. And I had had a couple of really good games against them, and had been pretty mouthy. So when we came out, we used to, I used to lead the team. I was a captain. I would lead the team in a lap around the whole court and kind of like lap around the other team. And as I was doing that lap, they were throwing trash at me. 
So, yeah, there's that. Um, but I think the drought, it, it's miserable for me because I love sports. I'm heartbroken that the Olympics have been moved to next year. I can't imagine. I actually have one of my closest friends in life uh, was was a near Olympian. So I know the level of work that these athletes put in and to have that now delayed for at least it's delayed. So they'll still be able to do it. Um, but I think, you know, it's going to come back. This thing is going to end. We are the greatest country in the world and in the history of the world. So we're going to beat this thing. And we'll get sports back eventually. And maybe all the sports will be jam-packed together. So we'll just have Monday through Sunday, seven days, uh, 24-7 worth of live sports to watch coming up soon for the fall. All right. So Lauren, Gabriel, Michael, now I understand why Ruth found babysitting you. Greg and Gary so memorable. That's funny. Yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happened. All right, well, I'm not seeing any other questions, so I'm going to sign off for the day. Um, hey, keep safe. Remember, if you just stay on top of your hands, keeping those clean and sanitized and not touching your face, you're going to be fine. You're going to survive this thing. We're all going to get through it. The economy is going to come bursting back, and uh, we'll look back on this and see how our country move forward because that's what God does. He turns tragedy into glory uh, for him. So we'll know and see how God has been involved throughout this entire process. All right, folks, see you later.